This episode of The Capsule in Conversation is brought to you by Harrogate Spring Water. Famous for its waters since 1571, Harrogate is Britain's premium natural source water. Hello everyone, you are listening to the Capsule in Conversation podcast. I'm Natalie Anderson and today I'm talking resistance, revivals and reaching for the remote with actress and presenter Denise Van Outen. So settle down, turn us up and get ready to join us in our conversation. you've all had a really gorgeous week. I cannot believe that this is the last episode of this series. One minute we were going back to school and in the blink of an eye, suddenly we are welcoming Christmas. The time has certainly flown by. We've had some incredible and insightful conversations along the way, which I hope have brightened your cooler, dark days. And we're not done yet. Bringing the sunshine to our podcast today is a legend of TV and stage. She's woken us up with the big breakfast and is currently taking us to lunch on Steph's Packed Lunch. She's wowed on Broadway and in the West End and even skated across our screens in ITV's Dancing on Ice before getting cosy on the sofa in Gogglebox. She's an absolute star and a national treasure. It is the gorgeous Denise Van Outen. Hi, Denise. Hi, thank you. What a lovely intro. Thank you so much. Oh, no, thank you so much for being here and in person. This is a huge thing for us, for me and Kat. Like, we've not we've not really seen each other, so to be in person in the studio with you is an absolute joy. Thank you. Thank you. And, this, and likewise as well, because I know we've talked about this for quite some time, <laughs> and it was like just trying to find the date that we could both get together. So we're here now. Let's do it. We are. And you've just run across from Steph's Pack Lunch. Are you enjoying it over there? Do you know, I do absolutely love the show. I love it because for me, it has a similar feel to when I did The Big Breakfast, because it's live. And Steph's just such a brilliant host and very talented. No ego whatsoever. So there's a really happy atmosphere in the studio. And it's got a little bit of everything that I love. You know, it's topical. We've got lots of brilliant chefs that come in and cook. I mean, I've just stuffed my face with a volivant filled with pasta from Simon Rimmer. Um, But yeah, just like I said, it has got elements of the big breakfast which is what I always missed in TV where it's quite free. You can do what you want. I can be a little bit cheeky. Well, I was going to say that because the big breakfast was synonymous for being rebellious for, you know, breakfast television. It wasn't like the news that you got on all the other channels. You suddenly had this show that was like a bit disruptive, you know, and a bit cheeky. And did you enjoy that side of it? Do you know, for me, because when I started on the big breakfast, I'd never done presenting before. So I was really thrown in at the deep end. And people don't realise that, but when we did it, we had no autocue like you have now. There were no script writers and no script. So basically for two hours, you just had to talk and we'd have a topic, a subject or a guest in. And it was up to the individual to do their own research. So you really wasn't like, you know, you weren't, didn't have a team around you wrapping you in cotton wool. It was a bit, bit like just get on with it. Um, so I learned so much doing it. And in fact, when you do TV, you have an earpiece, which mm. anybody has presented or done anything like that. And you have different frequencies in your ear. So you'd have 
uh, the studio, the gallery producers talking to you and giving you direction. But ours was an open talkback and we were on a flight path. So I had nine different frequencies going through my ear. <laughs> so I'd be doing the big breakfast, chatting. So I'd have the producer talking to me. And then we'd also be picking up the flight path and, you know, um, pilots trying to land a plane near City Airport. So it was mental. It was mental. But I did learn so much from it. And do you think that because, um, you know, you'd started so young as a performer and gone to the Sylvia Young Theatre School, you know, being on the West End stage, even as like a tiny little girl in Les Mis, that element of live, that element of kind of like, just get on with it. And you've got to you, like the roller coaster. Do you think that really prepared you for that kind of television? I definitely think so. And I feel like I thrive when I'm live. It's what I enjoy the most. Um, which is, I've, I'm slightly ADHD, so I find it very, very hard. I get bored very quickly, so I find it very hard to do something that's going to take a, a, a long time, which is why when I've done dramas and things, I've always found it a bit frustrating, you know, that it can take half a day to shoot one scene. I couldn't, what you do is amazing, um, but everything has to be quite fast-paced for me, so... It actually really suited my personality. For me, you see, I'm I'm kind of the other way. I get those terrible nerves. And like when I'm on live telly and like you're saying and you've got the producer in your ear and I'm going, <laughs> and I can feel the sweat in my hands. I mean, do you ever get nervous or do you just think, oh, no, this is the buzz of it? I don't know if I do. I mean, there are some things that I get nervous for. So, I mean, obviously, if I've done a show and I'm with a cast of people that comes with a certain responsibility. So it's not about me. It's about us all as a team putting on a great show. So I don't want to let my team members down, you know, and fellow actors. But when I'm doing presenting and stuff, I don't really get nervous. No, I, I, I don't actually think about the fact that there's an audience out there because I think that's when the nerves creep in. If you think, oh, you know, we've got, I don't know, a couple of million people watching or something, then you'll get scared. So I've, I tend to try and forget that and just be in the moment. And do you think as well... Um even though there is a certain thing about confidence, but also the trust in yourself. Like I think I get massive bouts of self-doubt and I'm like, oh, that little like chimp on my shoulder starts talking to me and starts talking me down and going, oh my God, you're going to be terrible. You're going to be Do you have that or do you manage that? I've had it, but it's manifested itself in other areas. Not Never really with presenting, but I've always felt very comfortable with that. And I've always felt, I've sort of had the gift of the gab that I can just talk my way in and out of anything, you know, so... Um, that's the Essex in me. <laughs> but I would say in, with performance with singing, I had the rock crept in for me for quite a few years where I love singing and mm. I was happily sing at home, but I found it very difficult to sing as myself because I'd always played characters. Mm. So when I was a kid and I did Les Mis, you know, I'm fine if I'm a character, but the minute I'd be somewhere and somebody would go to me, here's a mic, sing a song... I, I just think, well, I don't know how to do it because I'm just, I'd find it very, very frightening. But I have actually overcome that, funnily enough. And one of the reasons that I did The Masked Singer when it first came out was for that very reason, because it was a fear that I needed to overcome. So I thought if I don't face this head on, then the, I'll carry this through for the rest of my life. Yeah, and that would be such a shame because your voice is incredible. And, you know, oh, obviously you're you. doing the, the proud cabaret at the minute in London as yourself and all those incredible numbers. So... Did you know about that kind of um, job prior to going on to The Masked Singer? No, it came to me after The Masked Singer. So they approached me afterwards and it's evolved so much because it wasn't really supposed to be the big show that it has become. It started off as something very small. It was supposed to be just a, like a small cabaret performance, but we've got all these amazing acts in it now. And it's become a much bigger show with dancers, and which I'm really proud of because we, when we started off, it was it's quite a big venue and there was probably only about, not the previous for, to me doing it, they had like three tables were busy, mm. but we all worked really hard. And then we've just been selling out. So 
Well, at one point, when we came out of the first lockdown, we were allowed to open in London because we were considered to be a safe venue because it mm. had social distancing, because it's a restaurant setting with a stage. But we were at one point the only performance venue open in the UK. We did like nine, I think it's nearly 10 weeks of just being the only show running. Which is quite amazing. That is amazing. And the show itself, you know, what I love about it is it's very risque. It's got almost like a French feel to it, you know. And I know you've talked before about performers almost like Dita Von Teese-esque thing. Again, do you think that plays into your playful, naughtier side of your personality? Definitely. I mean, I thought if I'm ever going to do a burlesque cabaret show, do it now because, you know... I'm pushing 50. So I thought it's not something I want to do when I'm a little bit older, you know, than I am now. But definitely you can be a bit cheeky with it. But some, I mean, I wouldn't be doing the burlesque. I'd just do the singing. But it's definitely got a cheeky bit of um, bit of a nod to it. And I love it, you know, and I just think the acts are all so different. And I actually love seeing all the young performers because you've got all these young performers that are doing this incredible art, you know, because it's their circus performers as well as, you know, burlesque and you get some mad things. We've got like this woman who does sword swallowing and there's only two women in the world that do the act that she does because it's so dangerous. And you're standing there thinking, how did you discover that you could do that? <laughs> like at what point in your childhood did you pick up like a bread knife or something and think I'm going to just see if I can take that down? But um, that's what fascinates me. And we have foot jugglers and I mean, it's bonkers, but it's it's also a real eye opener and into what you can achieve and what these incredible people come up with, you know, these acts that they pluck out of obscurity and then suddenly just make them into something really special. I think as well as human beings, we're really fascinated by different and fascinated by things that, are, you know, just push the boundaries. I mean, going back to your career in the West End, you know, obviously you famously played Roxy Ha. I mean, oh my God, you were just amazing. And then took the show across to Broadway. I mean, for you as a younger performer at that time, you know, obviously you'd worked your whole career performing for being a young girl to then seeing yourself on Times Square on all the billboards. What was that like? Would you know, I never really, this is going to sound wrong because at the time I loved it, but I didn't really appreciate it as much as I do now. Mm. And I think that for me at that particular time, I was going through a really terrible breakup and heartbreak. So that overshadowed everything for me. So for me, being there was a bit like, I love it, but I was just throwing myself into work and I was just kind of going through the motions. And I remember being there and I actually saw Gordon Ramsay and he said to me, you'll appreciate this in years to come. It'll be one of those things you'll look back on and go, wow, and that's what's happened. Now when I see the pictures, I go, that was really a real moment. But to be honest, at the time, I just were kind of, I went with it. You don't realise sometimes the highlights of your career until years later, you know, because you're just living in it. Yeah. Does that make you, do you ever think, get frustrated though at that period in time and think with the other person and think, oh, you took that from me. Like, do do you get cross about it or do you think it is what it is? No, it is what it is. And probably the reason why it did so well and probably the reason why I played the part well was because I could dig, dig deep and have those emotions. So, I mean, would I have done so well? Would they have taken me to New York had I not have had my heart broken? I don't know. Yeah, I suppose when you think about it like that, you kind of have to think everybody, everything happens for a reason, really. And as you say, investing yourself so much into the role maybe did help you kind of give it that extra thing that took it across to Broadway. I mean, what an amazing achievement, though, for for you now, as you say, looking back on it, go, wow, God, I really did that. I mean, because that's a huge 
achievement for any performer to make that leap across to to Broadway. What I'm finding now, and as I don't know if you're the same, but I'm finding as I'm getting older, the the kind of roles that I'm now like playing are so interesting as as women who have lived and I'm finding that I'm really excited by this new phase of casting and what's happening in the industry. Is that the same for you? Uh, yeah, I do feel like you can find things with a little bit more depth, which is really, um, which is interesting. But also I think a lot of that just comes from what you bring to something, you know. Mm. So, I mean, everything's everything's a little bit more challenging when you're older, which is why I feel like you probably get more satisfaction out of it when things do work out or go well. But I definitely think that... For me, there's so many other things I'd still love to do that I haven't done. You know, I mean, I've Ooh, been... like what? <laughs> well, you know, I've just gone on to the other side a little bit more now where I've started like writing and producing. And that's another area that I really want to explore because I feel like I have been doing this since I was so young. I mean, it's a lot of years, you know. I started when I was seven years old. I'd, I've never done anything else other than what I do. But I know every... I know the industry inside out on both sides of it, you know, front of the camera, behind the camera. So I'd like to challenge myself there, really. It's not necessarily necessarily playing acting roles, but I'd like to look at other roles behind the camera and directing, producing, and just challenge myself in that way. Well, as you said, in directing and producing, you know, obviously we've seen so many women now march forward and really kind of stand up and be counted and say, right, I want to write, I want to produce, I want to direct. And again, it's really important that we tell those female-driven stories. I mean, things, you've seen the industry change massively over the last 30 years. I mean, if we think back in the 90s when it was kind of a keep up with the boys culture to what it is now, would you say that now the stories are more about kind of appreciating our womanhood and all of our strengths and all the different things that we bring to society as opposed to almost being in a competition with the guys? Oh, yeah, there is no competition, Mm. let's face it. I mean, (laughs) we know how to run things. Um, Yeah, definitely. And I think I love it that, you know, it's funny because I was obviously around in the 90s and it was that big Adept culture, as you've said, and Zoe Ball um, was on the scene there and Sarah Cox, and we're all still working and doing our thing. And we've all kind of like managed to come through what was quite a hedonistic time, but we've all got kids and we're like mums, but we're still working and still juggling careers and still doing what, you know, we always did really. Whereas a lot of guys that were around Mm -hmm. at the time, you don't really hear of them now, you know, and we just were like a bit of a force to be reckoned with really. So... I think long live girl power. Oh, yes. Look, that is a proper 90s thing. Yes, I love that. And as you know, and I, I interviewed Arlene, Arlene Phillips on this um, podcast series oh, last year. And she was really adamant about kind of flying the flag for the older woman. And like you look at her now and she's in the jungle and that's very much what she said. And it is important, isn't it, that we keep seeing women on screen and that we're not invisible because there was a time when, you know, women past 35 are invisible. Yeah, absolutely. And I do feel like there are a lot of women that are, you know, very, very strong women and still able and capable of doing certain jobs. And I I, I think it has changed a lot as well, which is I'm, I'm really thrilled about that you've got a lot of women getting some of the big roles in radio, in TV, in theatre and, and being celebrated. I do think it's really important. That we kind of fly the flag for for a younger generation. I yeah. t- I totally do because I you know we talk about it a lot on this podcast just about paving the way and about who our kind of female role models are and who we look up to so that younger women can you know talk about things freely and be expressive and 
know what's coming next, I suppose, in life because things are very, very different. You know, you've got you've got your daughter, Betsy. I mean, is she, she's just about coming into teenage years, is she? She's teen- 11. She's so 11. She's, I keep saying she's a teenager because she's yes. a, like a proper teenager. <laughs> I'm starting to get the eye rolling, you know, when I ask her to do things. Like, can you go make your bed? And she's like, no, oh, mum. <laughs> so I've got a proper teenager on my hands. And how was that um, for her during lockdown? You know, obviously with homeschooling, that was difficult for the kids then, you know, not being able to kind of see their friends. How was how was that for you guys? Well, we had a little bit of an advantage because I'd homeschooled Betsy before lockdown for a mm. year because my daughter's got some learning difficulties, dyslexia, dyspraxia, dyscalculia. She's got all the disses. I always say to you, you got you take every diss. Um, so we had struggled because we'd moved house to find a school. And when we did find one eventually, in that period in between, we had to do a little bit of homeschooling. And that was advice that I'd taken through Stacey Solomon at the time because I was doing uh, Loose Women. Yeah. And she was homeschooling her boys. And so then when we then, she went into, then found a school, joined the school, did like six months there and then we went into a lockdown. And then all the other kids were freaking out and she was like, well, I was doing this last year so it's just easy for me. I think she struggled in certain parts of not seeing other kids but we did make the most of it. And we actually had quite a nice time. You know, we just was like, I'm very, I'm quite a positive person. I was just like, it is what it is. You know, all my work had stopped like yours Mm. had and everybody's work stopped. And I just thought, let's just turn this into a positive. And what was really nice for me was I was able to sit down with her and get to really know her and how she learns. Because, you know, with her learning, her brain is wired differently. So looking at the way that I would work out, you know, maths or, you know, the way that she looks at her English is very different to how I approach it. So it was really quite a learning curve for me. I think I went to school more than she did. Oh God, so did I. I literally was like year five, oh, year four maths. I was like, oh my God, and trying to do all the English and everything else. And that it just shows you just how much, as you say, our kids, they really soak up different things in different ways. The um, funniest thing was though, because her teacher, because Betsy does love doing art, you know, and craft. So they set her a couple of projects. But I found I got so into them that I was getting to the point, like I was saying to her, like I was trying to finish it. And she was like, mummy, that's my work project for school. <laughs> and then I was doing things like when she was in bed at night, like just to try and make it brilliant because I wanted it to be like the best one in the class when that to show them on Zoom. And then I was literally sitting there waiting for the teacher to mark it to see what mark I got. <laughs> what so mark I, cheated, I got. <laughs> I cheated all of her artwork. I confess up to it now, but I literally did every art project for her because I was just like, I was loving it. It gave me something to do. Would you say that you are a high achiever? Were you like that in school yourself? Yeah, I mean, everything I do, I guess it comes with the sort of ADHD kind of, you know, one of the sides of that, that everything I apply myself to, I go hell for leather. It's like at one point I was, I play golf and I love golf. But when I started learning to play golf, I was doing it constantly, you know, and I just wanted to be really good at it. And I just, I'm a bit of a doer, I'd say, you know, if I'm going to do something, I'll do it and I want to do it properly put it into action. Yeah. You know, you just mentioned there about ADHD. Was that something that you found out later on in life or from a young age? No. So I've never been um, properly diagnosed. So it's a self-diagnosis really because of my daughter, because obviously I've she's had every test going. And so we know exactly all the issues that she's got with her learning. But a strand of it for her is ADHD and her focus. And I was Definitely. As I'm going through all the questionnaires for Betsy and I'm sitting there with a specialist, every time they said something, she'd say, yes, yes, I find that hard. And I was thinking, so do I. Like, Mm. can you sit still? No. Can you concentrate? Do you lose focus? 
are you 100 miles an hour? Do you talk a lot? Which is perfect for this podcast, by the way. Um, but just everything. You know, I can't, I struggle to sit um, still. I get fidgety. I have to be fidgeting and doing things. So I definitely, I know I've got it. You know when you just know. Yeah, and what I find interesting is Melanie Sykes this week talked about her autism diagnosis and how actually twisting it on its head or turning it on its head, she sees so many of the skill set as a positive because she was talking about how she edits um, the Frank magazine and how her brain is wired to suit that job. And actually these conditions, so to speak, that have been labeled in the past aren't necessarily detrimental as you've found for you and your career. They can, you can have massively positive things from things like this. Would you agree? Absolutely. Because my bizarre bonkers brain that comes up with all these random ideas, you know, I wrote a play off the back of something that was just the thought in my head and then ended up performing it in the West End. And that would never have happened had I have had a really academic brain that was just wired to just do, you know, maths and things. But I, it was just, it goes to another place. And my daughter always says to me, Betsy, she said, we've got mad heads, haven't we? Because we just think like random mad thoughts. But then I then turn it into something. So definitely I've seen it as an advantage. There, it's had its disadvantages, don't get me wrong. You know, I mean, there are things where it's affected me over the years with certain things because mm. I can't sit still or concentrate. And like I said, I really struggled with acting, mm. being on set, because I just get bored. I did a series called Where the Heart Is. Yeah. And I loved all the cast on it, but they would, you know, it's multi-camera. So we were shooting everything, scenes over and over. And by, you know, the fifth take, I'm just bored, you know, and that's, I found it hard. It felt long and laborious for me. And how does that manifest then in terms of the theatre, which is the same again and again and again? That's fine because it's live. Right. So that's got a buzz to it for me. And that's got some kind of, uh, you know, the minute you step on stage, the adrenaline. But it's unless I've got that buzz and adrenaline, then I lose interest. Because you were in um, Rent, the revival of Rent, which again was absolutely amazing. And, you know, you said earlier about doing other things. I know obviously you talked about kind of producing and directing, but are there any other roles that you want to tackle? Well, one of the characters that I always really wanted to play and I kind of missed the chance because I was pregnant was to do Sweet Charity. <gasps> I've only ever done the concert version. You would um, be amazing. You know, did you know, I'd love to do I'd love to tackle it. But I did. That was one of the parts I really wanted to play. And another one, which people are always a bit surprised at, is because I did Les Mis was my first West End show when I was 11. Um, I've always wanted to play Madame Tenardier. Which mm. is because I just think it's a real character, fun character to play. You'd be excellent as either of those. Uh, We're putting it out there, putting it into the universe because we definitely need to see you on stage doing either of those roles. Um, going in back to television, you're on Gogglebox now with your partner, Eddie. And I absolutely love watching you guys. I sit at home and I say to my husband, we should have a camera on us watching them, watching them. Because it's you all do the same thing. Do you enjoy filming that? We have fun. I think for us, it's the thing that we, I'm always working like you and I'm, mm -hmm. you know, your time at home is precious. Mm -hmm. So the fact that I could do a job, which doesn't feel like a job, but it's at home and it's with him, felt like the right thing to do. And it is what we're like anyway. I mean, Eddie's more bonkers than me and he's more ADHD than me. And so we don't stop talking. We could not, we cannot sit and watch TV with other people because we're really annoying because we talk <laughs> all the way through it, which for Gogglebox is perfect. But the outtakes, I don't know, sometimes some of the things that we talk about don't make it onto the show 
and you'd think they would, but I think there's just so much content because we don't shut up. We're really annoying. <laughs> yeah, but you are really funny as well because you do have your little arguments over it. And I think that's really natural, isn't it, with yeah. couples? I'm always... My, my, I always say to my James, shh, shh, it's like you're talking. I'm like, you're talking. And then you miss half the programme. Yeah, he annoys me to watch telly with as well. He just, <laughs> he does. He's, he, and you know what he does? He always, if it's a drama, he'll preempt the end. And I'm just like, please, like, can I just watch it? As soon as you sit down and go, say it was a thriller, you know, and these guys walked into a house and you go, I know what's going to happen here. He'll go, he's going in there. The wife's out the back. She's hiding in the shed, blah, blah, blah. And I'm like... Just watch it. Just shut up and watch it. <laughs> I think what I love about Gogglebox as well, though, is that it gives you ideas for what to watch. Yeah. Do you just get to see everything? Well, you watch quite a lot, as you can imagine. And uh, yeah, it's like a marathon of TV shows. But um, but yeah, some of it you watch and then it doesn't make it into the show. You know, I mean, they show you a lot of news and things like that. But it's all cut into snippets. And you know what it's like? It's hours of filming with just little snippets that make it onto the screen. But as you say, you get to spend it at least together, which is nice when you're away working yeah. a lot. It's done at home. We do ours at home and, you know, we sit and eat snacks all day. By the end of it, I feel sick. <laughs> I eat so many sweets that I feel like I've got fur on my teeth. And, you know, we talked earlier about the fact that you're on Dancing on Ice. Now, that was a different kind of experience for you because you got really injured didn't you? Terribly injured and also I've got to be really honest this is one of my real faux pas where when we went into lockdown I knew that I would uh, the second lockdown summer lockdown the first one like all of us there were elements of it I just absolutely loved mm. I mean the weather was banging wasn't it we yeah. were in the garden barbecuing you know and I was going this is great the winter one I was like I'm not going to be able to do this I'm such a summer person anyway and I love the sunshine so the thought of just being stuck at home, not working, I just panicked. And the only show that was casting was Dancing on Ice. And I've never ice skated before in my life, <laughs> apart from once I went on a date and I fell over. So I knew I wasn't, it wasn't something that comes naturally to me. So I was like, it will give me something to do. I can learn this. And I was thinking, like most people would, I've danced. How hard can it be? <laughs> but it's very different from dancing. I mean... You've got to have real core strength and really good coordination. And I'm those are the things that I really do struggle with a little bit, which people are surprised at. Mm. But Matt, my partner, couldn't believe how bad I was. He, <laughs> he thought I was going to be really good. And the, the fact that I fell over two days before the first live show does not surprise me at all. And I, this is going to sound really awful, but for me, I felt like it was a bit of a blessing mm. because I just thought I'm out. I didn't want to go out because I loved the training. I didn't want to like you know, bail out of the show. But the fact that I could give someone else the chance to do it who was going to love it, I was quite happy to hand over that baton because I was just like, I'm going to end up paralysed from the neck down if I stay in this show because I was just falling over all the time. Every day I trained, I fell over. And it is notoriously hard for that. As you say, like Kay Burley really like smacked all her cheekbone in and people do come away with these lifelong injuries. And I'm still now having physio on my shoulder. I've fractured it in three parts, dislocated it twice and tore all the muscles. I'm still having treatment. And so now when you, obviously with these kind of shows, are you thinking to yourself like, actually, it's not worth it? Like, as you said, because it could put you out of work. Yeah, I would never put someone off doing it because like I said, my experience was a lot to do with the fact that I'm just useless on ice. For other people, <laughs> they could do it and love it. Like I could never, when all the other contestants, and I, they, most of them are friends, you know, and they were going, I've fallen in love with ice skating. When we had to do our VTs where they interview you and say to you like, Tell us, you know, how you're feeling, what your thoughts are on ice skating. I just get saying, I hate it. I hate it. They're like, you can't say that. 
And everybody was just like, I've fallen in love with ice skating. I'm always going to ice skate. I've never put my ice skating boots on since. I will never step onto an ice rink unless someone pushes me on. Like literally, I, it was that bad for me. But guys, go out and do it. <laughs> but no, honestly, but then I know Kimberly Wyatt's doing it. Yeah. And I messaged her and I said, you'll have a great time because for her, she'll probably love it. But I was too scared. You know, I was, I found the ice scary. It just, it's not for me. And that really um, surprises me because you seem to me as a very fearless person, as you say, you know, do, not really suffering too much with nerves. To, to, so for you to be scared. It's speed. Yeah. It's like, how do you stop? Like you just, every time like Matt would skate with me, he'd get faster and faster. It was the speed that you're going at. And I was just like, I don't know how to stop. And do you think, um, you know, in terms of, fears and self-confidence when you've had moments of self-doubt how how do you get yourself out of that like what do you do what's your go-to for that by facing it head on right I think you just have to you have to go like I said with the singing thing for me and just anything and I've done I've climbed mountains and done loads of trekking things and cycles and you just got to face it and that's the only way you can overcome it and sometimes you can face your fears and there is still a fear like the ice skating for me but I have to then accept it because by not accepting it, it becomes a bigger thing for me. So I just accept it's just not something I enjoy. And in terms of, you know, the acting and performing industry, we face a lot of rejection and a lot of kind of having to build yourself back up again. Do you think that that's helped you kind of um, with some of maybe your fears is the fact that you've built up a resilience from being a young kid? Yeah, I mean, I obviously, like I said, I started when I was seven and was working professionally from the age of like nine, ten. So I had a lot of rejection in terms of like auditions and wanting to get things and being told no. And I'm very hardened to it. And I, it upsets me when I see young performers, how affected they are by it. Because you are, you just have to always remind yourself, however you feel now, fast forward the tape a year and you won't be feeling like that. And that's what you have to always keep in your head. I won't feel like this in, in time. You know, it's a, just a moment. So just, to, you know, and don't indulge in it too much. So like I don't ever read on social media or, you know, the mail online where you get people trolling. I've never read a comment. I don't read them. I mean, if I see something bad, sometimes I have to react to certain things, you know, mm. because it's uh, if I'm advertising something, something and someone asks a question about it, I have to respond. But I don't sit there scrolling through to see what people think of me. I don't care. I love that because, as everyone will know on this podcast, I am the most anxious, nervous Nelly going, and I would love to take some of that. But from- take it because who? what are they to your life? They're nothing. Like, they're not... If someone says something negative... And it's not going to enrich my life. I just delete and block. Like, why would you do that? Why would you? You wouldn't want to walk down the street, would you? And someone walks up to you and says to you, I saw you the other night. I thought your acting was terrible. But you'll sit there and read it and take it online. Mm. No, I probably would take it in the street as well. No, you can't do that. You've just got to be, you know, you've got to give yourself a touch of the Gemma Collins and just go around thinking I'm a bit fabulous here. <laughs> yeah, yes, that's what I want. That's what I want from this podcast, you know. And you... You um, have written your own book, which was meant to come out this month, wasn't it? It's um, a bit of me. Yeah. And obviously you've moved it because you wanted to put other chapters in. And and in the biography, it says that, you know, you want it to empower women. What what can we expect from your book? Oh, it's got everything. I mean, it's got all this so much in there. In fact, this was what happened. We wrote it, did it in the last lockdown. And I was with the publishers and it was all going full steam ahead. And I just thought there's still so much that's not in it that I've missed out. Because I think when I was doing it in lockdown, I was a bit, 
I was going through old photographs, trying to like go back on our past memories. But then after it was finished and it had gone, been sent to the publisher, I was thinking, oh, I've missed this out, I've missed that out. Or a friend of mine would mention something. And then I just thought, you know what, I have got more to say. And I think it's probably the first time that someone's pulled their own autobiography to re sort of redo it. But I just want it to be like when it's done, it's not, I just want it to be the complete story. And it wasn't complete in a lot of ways. I felt like in the last little bit wasn't where I'm at now. And so do you think, as you said earlier, you know, if you're going to do something, you're going to do it right and do it absolutely across everything. And I think also what I was trying to do was I was trying to be a little bit too sit on the fence. And that's not me. And that was partly because people around me, other influencers, other people saying, well, I wouldn't say this and I wouldn't say that because of repercussions. And then I suddenly sat and I thought, but what's the point in doing it if I'm not going to be honest? So wait till you read it. Oh, I'm so excited <laughs> to read it. There's going to be so many amazing things in there. As you said, you know, you've had such a, an incredible kind of career and and in your private life, you've overcome so much in that as well, you know, to, to get to kind of where, where you're at now with Eddie. And so when do we have a new date for the book yet? Well, they've said 22nd of March. That is, oh. that's, so it's, yeah, it's next year. We just thought, forget the Christmas market, we'll do it for Mother's Day um, and bring it out then. So yeah, I'm like, I'm still, I'm right in the middle of writing the next part of it. So I've got, got to get a bit of a wiggle on actually and get it finished. And in terms of like your overall health and well-being, you know, do you, are there things that you go to to kind of, to help you stay positive, to help you kind of have the disposition that you have? Um, I think what I try and do, and I've really had to apply this because I'm such a grafter and workaholic. I love working. I'm not, mm. I'm not saying that as in a derogatory thing because I love it, which is why I keep doing it. And sometimes I forget time for me. And I do think you need to do that. And I, this year, I went away for three nights on my own and did a little mini break. And it's something I haven't done for years. And I literally switched my phone off, took books, and I just rested and I just enjoyed my own headspace and just relaxed. And, and it was really like a good thing for me to do. And I've decided now that every year I'm going to do that at least once or twice a year. Because I think it's, you have to have a mental sort of detox as well. You know? I think so because don't you feel like the world is so busy now? It's so fast and so busy. And even with the kids, like what the kids are doing, their diaries are crazy. And then your own diary is mad. And as women, um, I just feel like what we've what we've got coming at us at any one time, it's just so much. I had this conversation with my mother-in-law and she said, God, I don't know how you live in today's world because you're just open to everything. It, that, it, was it something like that that made you think, actually, I need to take a, a time a out? Back. Yeah, yeah, totally. And also, like, I started to get to a point, and I'm still a bit like it, that if there is a day off, I feel, I feel guilty or weird having a day off, and that shouldn't be the case. Do you know what I mean? I'd yeah. start thinking, like, oh, I feel like I should be doing something. And actually, sometimes you need to just do nothing because it's really important. It's about mental well-being. It's not just, you know, your physical being. It's it's about just switching off I and having think a reset. In in our industry in particular, and if you're self-employed or, you know, if you're like the head of a business, when it's on you and you've had it kind of, you've been conditioned to be the worker, get it done, you know, no one's going to do it for you. And you've had that like programmed into you for so long to actually get to that point where you, you're going to go, I might step back. There's a fear there, isn't there? There's a fear of, ah, oh, the world might move without me. Yeah, and you realise very quickly that nothing really changes. You can dip in and out. It's just being brave to do it. I think that is the problem with all of us. As women, we tend to think, oh, if you take your foot off the gas, 
you're going to lose the moment. Mm. But you create more special moments sometimes by doing that. Oh, I love that. That is so good. Yes, we're going to do that, Katniss. You can go on yours and I'll go on mine. Take a little mini break. <laughs> well, Denise, we have run out of time for today. Oh, I could it, talk to you I more. Know, I know, there's so many things. Oh, before we go, actually, yes, before we go, this series, I've been asking each of my guests for their top well-being product or practices that they would highly recommend for our capsule well-being. Do you know what? It's a really old, simple thing, but take yourself for a really nice long walk I think sometimes like just going for a nice walk is so good for your well-being and just making you feel good positive and I love being in the great outdoors it's something that I've always enjoyed so even if it means walking in the rain sometimes you just got to enjoy the elements I mean sunshine is better uh, I told you she was going to bring the sun today, guys. Well, we have run out of time for today, but it's been absolutely wonderful to have you with me. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for having me and stop reading about those trolls. Oh, I know. I get so stressed. I'm like, everybody hates me. <laughs> we all love you. I hope you guys at home have enjoyed our conversation and that you're feeling excited for the festive season and 2022. You can catch Denise on Channel 4, on Steph's Pack Lunch and on Gogglebox and also keep up to date with her over on Instagram at Vanouten underscore Denise. As always, for more well-being, fashion and beauty, you can visit us at our website, www.thecapsule.co.uk, where you can also catch up with our previous podcast episodes by visiting the In Conversation page and subscribing to any of our podcast channels and YouTube. If you're a social butterfly, you can also catch us on Instagram and Facebook at Official Capsule. We are heading off now until 2022. And so I want to say a huge thank you to all of my guests this series. You've all been incredible. And to the fabulous team at Harrogate Springwater for making this series possible. A huge thank you also to our amazing production team, especially our producer, Kat, <laughs> who has just been awesome and kept us going through the COVID madness and everything else that we've had. But most importantly, I'd like to thank you guys at home for listening and for being with us. Your support means absolutely everything to me. I will be back next year with more conversations of inspiration, but today all that's left for us to say today is goodbye. So it's goodbye from Denise. Goodbye. And goodbye from me. And I hope you all have a wonderful Christmas. Merry Christmas. Bye-bye. This episode of The Capsule in Conversation was brought to you by Harrogate Springwater. Bottled at source, Harrogate Spring offers a pure, refreshing taste with a delicate blend of naturally occurring minerals and electrolytes, perfect for healthy hydration.